Inside Westminster, Chapter 226, Consequences. Benedict Morgan, ex-top chief advisor to the PM, and his still-employed wife, Gwendolyn, were at their wits' end. Peregrine, their eldest son, having miraculously won a place to read Ark and Anth at Gwendolyn's forebears, Alma Mater, Camford, should have been in seventh heaven and crossing his fingers with the luck that had come his way. But this luck was about to run out, big style, as one of his tormentees from his school days was coming back to bite him. And hard, as an official inquiry was about to start at his old school, Hanford, into lately brought up and serious complaints of, complaints of bullying which verged on torture, both physical and mental, and, in fact, emotional and sexual. How had this esteemed establishment got away with hiding the fact that Peregrine had actually orchestrated the horseplay, the words used by the then head in a letter to every parent about the shenanigans of a band of student reprobates, and had been part of the gang which had carried out the attacks on victims as young as 13. This horseplay was now called by its proper title of GBH, and if found guilty, could involve a prison sentence. But Peregrine, at that moment in time, was intent on enjoying himself, having decided that he definitely wasn't the type to spend the next three years of his life slaving single-mindedly in the library, striving to get the fabled double, double first. No, he'd said to his closest chum, Polinius Plumcock, plonker to his friends and family alike, I'm going to spend my time cultivating contacts. Much better way to spend my time. He'd realised that he'd chosen the least serious subject in the whole university, having attended the nth lecture, where the prof had spent the first half hour explaining what the relatively newfangled area of study actually was. I don't give a shit, Peregrine had said to his laid-back father. I just want this bloody degree as a stepping stone to greater things. His father had just harumphed his agreement as the subject didn't even exist at his alma mater, the rival institution of Oxford. Ben was just relieved that his son was going to get an Oxbridge degree, like he had, and didn't much mind that Peregrine wouldn't be slaving in the library day and night, like he had. Too much to expect, he'd commented to Gwendolyn as they read in bed, but at least his in and his attitude might change. Gwendolyn hadn't been really listening as she was deep in the diaries of yet another political blabber diarist who must be in need of money. Sir Arthur Buncombe, former Tory Foreign Secretary, was letting rip by messily spilling cans of beans all over the place. Isn't he MP for that wee place up north? You know, Rutshire or whatever, Gwendolyn quizzed. And wasn't he chased out of the county town's renowned butchers after he had had that money tree planted in his garden, laughed Ben, who'd loved following all the trials and tribulations of MPs during various scandals, the butcher incident following the notorious expenses claim fiasco. They both laughed, though nervously, as Peregrine was due to phone them. He'd promised to give an update on his legal situation following his receipt of a lawyer's letter threatening to drag up his schoolboy pranks. Though prank was a misnomer and only related 
to the deliverer of the punishment, not the recipient. He hadn't phoned by midnight, so Gwen and so Ben and Gwendolyn put their, phone, their phones to silent, switched off their bedside lights and tried to get to sleep. In their melee of emotion over Peregrine, they'd not been noticing the behaviour of their other son, Augustus, Gus to his friends and family, who'd been secretly climbing out of his bedroom window after lights out at his boarding school, shinning down the drainpipe and disappearing into the night. Gus had realised that being at this esteemed establishment might in fact, would be held against him forever in the world of work. He was well aware that, should Peregrine be done for assault, his own character would be forever tarnished by association. Indeed, he might face the ignominy of being cancelled by all his friends. He was in a state of mental turmoil about all this, which only added to his already adolescent, adolescent frenzied condition. He felt he had no one to turn to, so had decided that nipping down to the local to drown his sorrows with a few pints with a few of the town peasants, local inhabitants to you and me, would be the best course of action. While all this was happening, inside Windsor Castle a drama of a very different sort was playing out. Prince Frederick, who had never fully recovered from his recent stay in hospital, was slipping away, quietly, gently into the night. His family by his side had said his last farewell and suddenly was gone. So like, so like, dear Papa, Prince Hubert had said, with no fuss or fanfare. Winging his way belatedly to be by his grandfather's side was someone from a different age, an age of so-called awareness, where everyone was a victim, where everyone complained, where no one took responsibility, and funnily enough, no one gave an inch. Prince Rupert had sought permission from his wife Sassy to fly back to London, both having vowed never to set foot on the soil of a nation characterised by racism and ignorance, that a nation that is a nation which wasn't wholly woke. But to not be there at Prince Frederick's funeral would have been too much. He'd loved this man, who had lived through so much, who had truly brought himself up to be the formidable character that he was. How had he done it? Teddy had been asking himself as the days were drawing to an end for this giant of a man. He hadn't quite worked it out when Zahra, his living live-in mother-in-law, had said, well, didn't he always say that not thinking about yourself too much, not worrying too much about what others said about you and not taking yourself too seriously was what had worked for him? Guess so said the increasingly despondent Teddy, as he slowly realised that he had become the antithesis to all of his grandfather's maxims. And as he read more about the man, he realised more fully how his and Sass's act of rebellion must have hurt such a man. This man had devoted himself to his wife, Teddy's beloved Gramps, and to the nation who had taken him in, given him refuge, given himself worth. Was that nation the same one that, due to his own wife, he'd abandoned and betrayed in that interview? And now he was on his way to face his British family, and he was truly unsure how it would pan out, as no one had discussed that interview, its so-called truth and its devastating fallout. And then, of course, there'd be his nemesis, the British press. 
Princess Juliana, whom Sass had personally attacked in that interview, wasn't sure either, as she'd suffered at the hands of bullies at school and knew how such people operated. She'd come to feel that once a bully, always a bully, and wasn't sure whether any contrition, if there was to be any, would be fake, put on for show, but not sincerely meant. Well, we'll see, was all her husband, Prince Hubert, had said. The prince knew how he and his devoted wife felt, sick to the core that his own brother could have stooped so low as to do that interview. It's history repeating itself, Rob Magnar had said to his wife Zoe, and why can't everyone just stop, take stock, say sorry and crack on? Why, what, like they do in rugby, joked Zoe, who was about to give birth any day. You know what I mean, said Rob had been brought up by his mother on a council estate in Darlington, his dad having ditched them for his barmaid girlfriend and gone off to live off-grid in Provence. Ted was wrong to ever contemplate dumping our family's dirty laundry on the world. Gramps, I know, was very upset and Grandpa infuriated, Zoe said. Honestly, how can so-called top-drawer people make themselves so unhappy? Rob quizzed, adding... My mum was happy with putting her feet up on a Sunday evening after a hellish week of work and worry about where money was going to come from, for food and what we and my brother were getting up to, with just a small, and I mean small, box of weekend chocolates. Don't suppose they're made anymore? Well, simple pleasures, said Zoe. No, seriously, Zoe, retorted her husband. Your lot just complicate everything. What do you mean by your lot? asked Zoe, feeling a bit of anger creeping up. Look, let's not get into an argument, said Rob, trying to soothe his about-to-give-birth wife. We're okay, and that's all I care about. Shame they haven't got a real passion outside of their marriage like us, said Zoe, continuing. I mean, you've got rugby and I've got the horses. With that, they gave each other a hug and got on with their day, which turned out to be extremely eventful as their new addition arrived with such urgency that it all happened on the bathroom floor. No fuss, exclaimed Rob over the moon that it had at last got a little boy to share his passions. <laughs>